City on the edge. 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 Anyway, it's nice to have you all here listening. I'm Mike Smith here with the City on the Edge podcast. And also with me are... Nora Hickey and Ty Bannerman and they're awesome too and we're gonna have a great time talking about horrible things that if you ever got them would ruin your life <laughs> so that's that's right right we're gonna be talking about yes. uh, deadly diseases a little more it seems mm-hmm. like we have like a thing or something for this because this is like our third episode I, of this topic I've but. learned to love deadly diseases <laughs> I think um they kind of there's a lot of interesting like kind of history and it's ways true. people have tried to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Those lines between life and death where people are battling off, those are interesting lines. I believe you know? it is a it is the separating well that we will return to again oh, and again. And because those are significant events and they affect communities and people have to react, right. uh, react and they change family dynamics by killing off people or changing yeah. roles or weakening them. Like I I've just been doing a bunch of research into my like 1600s New England family, uh-huh. which was like quite a bit in New Hampshire. Hampshire and, and Massachusetts, and I found this group in New Hampshire that got canker quinsy, which is this stuff that's a form of diphtheria. And they that sounds like a rural doll character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You pronounced his name right. That's, I know because yeah. I, I was like, saw your say. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Rural doll. Rural doll is the correct oh, answer. Un- like my whole childhood was a lie. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but so they had it, but it was also called putrid sore throat, which is such a oh, horrible that's name. Definitely less and very descriptive. Yeah, and a hysteric, uh, I shouldn't use that word because it has a feminine root, but a very insane uh, crowd, they, um, they came out and they were like, uh, you caused this. And they accused a relative of my, one of my ancestors, like the, the brother of one of my ancestors, of spreading it through the community because he had gotten it from a hog that had oh coughed my- into his mouth. Oh, <laughs> Why was the yeah, hog it, so close his to his mouth? Uh, his name was Cornelius Clough, and he was the He's one He's Caker Quincy Cornelius. As what? A, like typhoid Mary? You've heard this story? No, oh, I'm kidding. Oh. I'm oh, stuff I, up. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> My ancestors are famous for horrible stuff. And today we're yeah. going to be things. talking about a couple of diseases and their uh, their role in, in Albuquerque and Albuquerque's okay. role in those diseases. They are mm-hmm. chaos theory, like... In physical form, right. you know, they just come in and just and they keep everything. coming up. Yeah. You know, the Hanta virus, tuberculosis, the two that we're going to be talking about today. Um, oh. We actually spoke about tuberculosis in a previous episode. That's true. Uh, but this time Pretty we've different. got local historian, uh, archivist, and author Mo Palmer. Mm. Thanks for reminding me. We, yeah, yeah, <laughs> she's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's going to be. Uh, I interviewed her at the New Mexico Public Health Conference um, about a month and a half ago. And she talked all about how uh, tuberculosis kind of formed the Albuquerque we know. And she's very knowledgeable about the subject. And also, she's pretty funny, I think. She is. She's a cool old lady. (laughs) I like Mo Palmer a lot. She wrote that very cool book, Albuquerque Then and Now, with photos of historic Albuquerque with their modern equivalents next to them. And her notes are just so thorough and Mm. precise. Oh, yeah, definitely. She's a great historian. She, She also wrote... A book that was published like on a small press. Uh, it's a whole history of Presbyterian Hospital. That's right. First hundred years Presbyterian yeah. mm-hmm. Hospital. She, yeah, cool. And that's great, a great resource. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to talk to her, and then cool. after that, uh, Nora um, has some information on uh, one of yeah. the more recent deadly diseases that mm-hmm. have come out of the New Mexico environment, and that had that Albuquerque kind of had a role in the discovery and treatment of. Wow. Yeah. So. 
Hantavirus. Hantavirus. Oh, that was that. Which I'm, was. Do you remember being scared of that? Terrifying. Were you here when that sure. was really being talked about a lot? I think I came here. Yeah. When did it? Uh, when did 93. it happen? So ninety three. So I came out in ninety five. So I think it was it was still talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was chatter that it was going to be epidemic. That it was going to really yeah. like change, yeah, shut yeah. down. Yeah, it was it was scary the way the flu like symptoms. And yeah, the way it was going to. Yeah, yeah. No, it was definitely some hot zone yeah. stuff. Or. But first, we have uh, some very important topical New Mexico news oh, really? coming in. Yes, in fact, you're in charge of it, Mike. So okay. uh, why don't you... Uh, I've noticed. I, All right, here well, we Hold on, wait a minute. I, I feel like right now I want to get our best New Mexico news music happening right here. New Mexico news, what do you got for us? What's hot right. off the presses? Hi. Prepare to be underwhelmed, but <laughs> I have noticed that there are a lot more roadrunners around lately. It's just getting warmer, but I'm seeing like five a day. Albuquerque, New Mexico, 2017, <laughs> May. <laughs> I've never seen so many roadrunners in my life. And the other day I saw a coyote crossing Rio Grande. Chasing a roadrunner? No, Aww. but I'm, but you have a rocket wonder, pack. Like, what's going on? Maybe there's increased construction or lack of resources or things like mm. that around town that are mm. driving animals into town. No, I feel like uh, we should uh, we should talk a little bit about roadrunners for the benefit of people who might be listening in other places. For instance, we got a lot of hits from places in the UK over the last few episodes, and I'd imagine uh, some of the, not you. all of them are real person or spam bot. <laughs> yeah, or spam bot. Whatever. <laughs> we want to tell you about roadrunners right now. So let's talk about roadrunners first. First of all, they're six feet tall. They're mm. blue. They've got orange feet, and they go beep beep. They speak with a voice of thunder. Um, no, roadrunners are these like they're very long birds. They're actually in the cuckoo family. They're related to cuckoos, and they have very similar coloration, really? brown and white. Each roadrunner also, and I think this is very interesting, has a blue dot right behind its eye. No uh, kidding. Each eye, yeah. It's, and uh, and it's they're like the size of a small chicken. I'd yeah, say. they're like small, a, kind of a shrimpy chicken. I used to go to the Sandoval County Historical Society all the time when I was researching Placidus and, and Hagen and some other some other things. And they had a roadrunner's nest right in the stone window uh, nook mm-hmm. on the way in. And it was the crappiest nest. Roadrunners <laughs> just do not give a crap about nest building. Like, it was literally four sticks arranged in a rough square as if to say, this should keep the egg from rolling out. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> it was like nothing. And, uh, they're pretty vicious, yeah. though. I mean, they're they're definitely like capable of defending themselves against yeah. a number of things. That's true. They'll eat they're like a whole rattlesnake, right? I think they're so attractive mm-hmm. yeah. as a outsider. As Seen a, yeah. one, you know, as our so, resident yeah. uh, northeasterner, yeah. Um, yeah. Midwesterner. I've heard pigeons called the hipsters of birds because they oh. they walk around when they can fly, like they're too cool to fly. <laughs> but I think roadrunners are kind of like they run around instead of fly. They're the gutter punks of birds. What are they? Yeah, they're like yeah, they're they're because like, they're like they've got a vicious streak to them. You know, like pigeons <laughs> aren't going to hurt you, but yeah, yeah, like there are a lot of posturing. Mm-hmm. Pigeons, I've seen them choke but, down lizards yeah. before, and they look just not. They look vicious a little bit. They're oh, savage they're in their totally attacks. Totally vicious. I used to think, you know, we used to think they were cute. You know, like they run around in the neighborhoods mm-hmm. here, all over the place. Um, I think most neighborhoods have a resident roadrunner or two. Mm. One of the houses I lived in, there was one that would kind of hang out, yeah. and we just we loved him so much. We thought it was adorable cool. until the day we saw him like with a sparrow. He had grabbed a sparrow <laughs> by the wing, oh, yeah. and he like kind of looked at us, and then he just. 
wailed it against the ground. Oh just my bam, God. bam, bam, like braining the little thing. And that's like, oh my God, this is not a cute creature. Nature this is, is like so peaceful. a savage dinosaur <laughs> uh, descendant right here. Wow. They have that look in their eye. Oh, yeah. Like they're, you know, they are predators that's and true. they are. Uh, oh they God. got the raptor legs too, like chickens. If you were uh, smaller than them, they would brain you against the sidewalk yeah. too oh, and not totally. even okay. think about Morning. it. Without yeah. hesitation. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the New Mexico news. Kind of. With a long digression at the end. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> put on topic about But we're a little chatty on the show, hours. right? Yeah. We, you know, I feel like we're hanging out with our listeners a little bit. Okay, and now <laughs> um, we're going to have a short one-act play. All right, let's hear this. Hey, Ty, what are you doing with that crate and all that crap? I'm working on a new service for our listeners. It's called Crap Crate. Did you say crab cake? Uh, No, crap crate. It's a great new service where I put junk I find lying around my house into a crate and then send it to people for just $20 a month. Hmm, what kind of junk? Well, that's the best part. It's just whatever I find that I want to get rid of, so nobody knows what it is until they open it up, and each month will have a different theme. So this month's will be things my dog's destroyed, and you might open up your crate to find some chewed-up Legos, a shredded Kleenex, or even a set of Doctor Who Season 2 DVDs that my dog's destroyed. They destroyed DVDs? Yes, beyond all repair. This sounds like a terrible idea. But Nora, it'll give people a way to help support the show. We already have that. It's our Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash edge. It's a great way for people to donate money to help support the show without us having to resort to promoting terrible products that nobody needs or wants. Plus, people who donate can actually pick up good products that they like, like City on the Edge t-shirts and even books about Albuquerque history, while supporting some plucky local podcasters. That's great. Except, what do I do with all this crap in my house? Throw it away. Fantastic. It's just selling out, you guys. It's just begging. You're just begging on the internet. <laughs> yes. um, by the way, thanks for shooting down literally everything I come up with, Nora. I just want them to be the best ideas they can be. Okay. I know you have it in you. And how is it that you're getting out of these, Mike? I don't know. You just keep recording when I'm not there. Like, (laughs) I'm down. (laughs) Okay. Well, at any rate, let's let's go into uh, tuberculosis with uh, local historian and archivist Mo Palmer. I wish I could have been there, but I can't wait to hear this. And then we're going to have uh, Hantavirus afterwards. And Mike, I've got bad news for you. What? You're not actually in the rest of this podcast. (laughs) Dude. Because we actually recorded this before. (laughs) But we got your Roadrunner. Yeah, we got the Roadrunner story. One time I got in a friend's band photo and they just photoshopped me out. Yeah. That's a blank white space (laughs) on a bridge. (laughs) 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 Like some music blog ran. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mo Palmer talking about tuberculosis. here in Albuquerque called City on the Edge. They explore the history of the city and sometimes out into the state as a whole. It's hosted by Ty, Mike, and Nora. And today we have Ty Bannerman with us from City on the Edge podcast, who will be interviewing Mo Palmer, who was a historian, a health historian, and used to work for Presbyterian. She is now retired. Um, So I'm going to pass this off to Ty. Okay, thank you, Courtney. 
Joining me today is Mo Palmer, historian, uh, award-winning historian. Um, she is also the author of Albuquerque Then and Now and the first 100 years Presbyterian Hospital, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, please uh, welcome her and we're going to just talk a little bit about... <laughs> so you can sit right here. And the reason we're talking about um, tuberculosis today is, uh, as Marcia mentioned, um, the New Mexico Public Health Association got its start May 2nd, 1917, and it was founded by a guy named John Toombs, who was Canadian and came to New Mexico in order to treat his own tuberculosis. And the organization, the NMPHA, was actually founded with the express purpose of studying and preventing tuberculosis. Uh, later on, obviously, as it, it modified its mission, um, and it's been hugely influential in the uh, in the state. We wouldn't have a New Mexico uh, health department without the NMPHA and, um, and John Toombs. Um, so I thought what we'd do is uh, we'd move back about 100 years ago and we'd take a look at what was going on in New Mexico at the time of uh, John Toombs' arrival and how tuberculosis kind of formed the, uh, the state and the city that we live in, or some of us live in today, and um, just how that influenced uh, public health in New Mexico. So... Hi, Mo. Can you hear me? I've shrunk two inches, so now I'm only 4'10". <laughs> so I have to really adjust. So tuberculosis was a worldwide epidemic um, in 1900 through 1940 or so. But people were coming to the southwestern United States from all over the world in order to hopefully treat their tuberculosis, and I, I wondered if you might tell us why that was. What, what was the reason that people were coming, especially to Albuquerque? Before, I'd say the 1880s, uh, there, there really wasn't any treatment for tuberculosis, and it was the scourge of, of the medical community because nobody knew what caused it and nobody knew what treated it. In 1881, someone discovered what caused it, but that still did not lead to a treatment. So what became popular was high altitude, sunshine, good diet, and fresh air, which Albuquerque has in abundance, as does the rest of the Southwest. And they began to come in 1826 when Mexico took over New Mexico. They opened up trade between the United States and New Mexico. And people began to walk out, ride in covered wagons uh, to get out here to appreciate this salubrious cli climate that we had in order to hopefully take the cure. <laughs> so they were grasping at straws in a way because I think that taking the cure probably worked for some people if you had a good immune system and for others it didn't. So some people came and passed away, but they began to come, and as the uh, communication between the United States and New Mexico opened up, more and more people began to, to come. Josiah Gregg wrote a book called Commerce of the Prairies, and he came with respiratory illness and got well, and so this word began to filter back. People began to come, and doctors began to say, go west, young man, and get cured of your tuberculosis. So they began to pour in here before the railroad came in 1880. And once the railroad came in 1880, they really arrived. And some of them arrived on the train and were picked up 
by an ambulance with white horses indicating <laughs> that they were going to a sanatorium. And if they came for you with black horses, you knew you were dead. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> Did they have to color code it? Like, <laughs> No, they used different color horses. <laughs> so uh, what was the treatment like for tuberculosis at that time? Mainly what they would have you do is lie around in the sun all day, and they called that heliotherapy. Heliotherapy. And so you see photos of people lying outside all covered up with blankets and just lying there on, in the sun. And they, they laid on... A, a chaise longue. And so we wonder if the term chasing the cure came from that. Yeah. So what they called it, when you looked at the schedule for the patients for the day, it would say from 9 to 12, chasing, and you would lie mm. outside. And the great diet, you had to eat a lot. They would give you raw eggs, laced with sherry as a snack. <laughs> And so I think they all died of high cholesterol. I don't think it was TB at all. But that and then rest, there was mandatory bed rest. Some patients were not even allowed to read because it was too strenuous. So uh, you mentioned a sanitarium. What, what exactly was a sanitarium a like sanitarium at that point? A sanitarium was a hospital for people with tuberculosis, but we didn't have one in Albuquerque, and so the people lived in tents, they lived in shacks, they lived in brushes, you know, that made a little shelter for them, they lived along the river, they lived out in the southeast heights, and in 1902, St. Joseph, with the Sisters of Charity, opened St. Joseph's Sanatorium, that was our first. I, I would warn you, though, that this was for people who had the means to pay for the care. That does not mean that the churches here, which eventually included Presbyterian, Catholic, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church, it doesn't mean that they didn't take charity cases or help people. It just means that they had, for the most part, paying patients. I am the archivist for Presbyterian health care services, so I have a lot of old records and pictures of people, and, and they were uh, very kind. But there still wasn't enough room, so we just kept building and building and building. People lived in boarding houses. They lived in local hotels. They lived in people's homes when they rented a room, okay? Because nobody really understood how contagious this is. They just didn't get it, and our city fathers promoted this with booster booklets, and they would say, come to Albuquerque, why exchange health for wealth when Albuquerque has both. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the wealth, you yeah. guys. You know, it hasn't come yet. Let me know so when you find it. <laughs> we encouraged them, and they came. They came. I bet that through two, two to three out of five people I interview say, oh, yes, my family came here because my uncle had asthma or my mother had DB. Or, you know, so respiratory illness began to attract many people. And ancillary services and doctors and nurses and pharmacists and everything, you know. And so it grew the town. Well, that was actually my next question, is how did that influence the development of Albuquerque into the city we know today? Tremendously, because you had the sanitariums and then all the cottages where tuberculosis people lived, and it, it pumped the economy. So one of my questions that you often don't see kind of uh, talked about is, were, what about the local people who are already living here? Were they um, contracting tuberculosis from they, people coming out here? or They were contracting it now. Not at a high rate, I would say, uh, but we don't have good records until your organization, I believe, was founded in 
1917. Mm -hmm. I don't think we kept records at all. Now, Susan Schwartz, who is the historian for Fairview Cemetery, has done statistics based on the cards that are in the cemetery. And she can tell you about how many people died of TB and were buried there. It's not always an accurate statistic because sometimes they would write died of pneumonia, but the pneumonia was caused by tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of flaky on offering statistics. So, uh, but I, I would say every time I go out and talk to someone, they're here because of a respiratory disease. So the people here just went about their business and they intersorted, intermingled with the tuberculosis patients until someone went, oh my God, this is contagious. And then things began to change. So I know about uh, 1919 or so, supposedly the, uh, the death rate uh, in New Mexico from tuberculosis was the second highest in the nation. Oh, I'm sure. Um, so what actually, uh, what actually changed? Um, how, did, uh, how did we transition from the era of people uh, taking their ease in the chaise lounge chairs to uh, kind of the more modern uh, approach to medicine? Well, they began, they, they began to come up with bizarre treatments, I have to say. They would collapse one lung so the other one could breast. That's called pneumothorax when you have a collapsed lung. But they did it routinely with the idea that if one lung was kind of put to sleep, that the other one would support you and the, the bad lung would heal. Now, when I was in emergency medicine, pneumothorax was a real emergency. You rush the ambulance out there, and, you know, do all kinds of contortions. But they, I interviewed a man who would ride the bus down to Presbyterian, have his lung collapsed, and ride the bus home. So they also did a thoracotomy where they would take out some of your ribs with the idea that that was going to rest your lungs. So there were some kind of interesting treatments, shall we say, <laughs> for tuberculosis. And there wasn't really a, a medicine that you could take. And that went on until the 1940s. And during World War II, they developed antibiotics. And so that cured tuberculosis. And so the great big sands began to fail. Yeah, I was going to wonder if that uh, was that a, uh, I guess that's a disruptive technology is what we'd call it now. Um, it uh, probably changed uh, Albuquerque's economy pretty considerably at that point. Here's what happened. The sanitariums either had to act or close. And we had several large ones. We had Presbyterian, St. Joseph, Methodist Deaconess, several different, and then smaller ones spread out around the city. So the three major ones became full-service hospitals. Press built a hospital in 1933. St. Joe built a hospital in 1927 or 28. And so they just changed focus and became general service hospital. That does not mean nobody had tuberculosis. It means that then they had a treatment. There was something that you could take on an outpatient basis to cure it. And so these three sanatoriums turned into... The Methodist turned into Methodist Baton Methodist Memorial Hospital, which was a full-service hospital, St. Joseph Hospital, which is, of course, now part of Loveless, and Presbyterian, which is the only existing, still existing nonprofit with sanatorium buildings on its grounds. And the rest of them just faded into the time. Okay. What, what, uh, what buildings are still on Presbyterian's grounds that are... The Maytag Tuberculosis Research Laboratory, which was funded by Frederick Maytag, who was a washing machine distributor, not the inventor, 
If you drive down Oak Street, and I'm sure all of you are not from Albuquerque, so you don't know what I'm talking about, but you probably have seen Presbyterian when you drive by. If you go by on Oak Street to Central, you can look to your right, and there stands this pink building, and that was the Maytag Research Laboratory, which they have incorporated and used for other things. And the hospital that they built on in the 30s is also still standing. Okay. Okay. Now, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the influential figures who came out to New Mexico as a result of the tuberculosis epidemic and the sanitarium era? Absolutely. Clinton P. Anderson, who would rise to become one of our most popular and effective senators, was in the Methodist Deaconess Center for Tuberculosis, decided to stay. Catherine Kennedy O'Connor came out here with tuberculosis and stayed and founded the Albuquerque Little Theater. John Gamim, who was a, an architect, came out here with TB, and he was in a Santa Fe sanatorium. But he began to build down here, and he built things such as Zimmerman Library and Los Poblanos. So many of his wonderful architectural uh, collections and buildings are still standing as a monument to him and to tuberculosis and who it brought. And, okay. uh, and that was just a few. I have a, quite a list <laughs> of people who... So in a way, you have to say we profited <laughs> by the citizens who came in and thought, I love it here and I'm going to help this community. Now, are you were, were there hospitals that were expressly for treating people who didn't have the means to, uh, to pay for their... No. No, they just didn't exist at all? or No, and one of the reasons now, in uh, 1902, St. Joseph, the sisters opened theirs, and there was still an enormous waiting list to get in. In 1908, Reverend Hugh Cooper of the Presbyterian Church, he and his wife, he came with tuberculosis, and he and his wife, when he got better, would start calling on these tent cities and these little shacks and these people living all one family in a room, and he knew that being together in that room was passing the disease to the rest of the family, and he was determined to do something about it, and that's why Presbyterian was built to okay. begin with. So Presbyterian was maybe working to to um, to alleviate the the problem overall. I don't think any of the sanatoriums turned away anybody. I think mm -hmm. they were charitable, of course, because they were religion-based institutions, and they would help as best they could, and the sanatoriums were just packed. And uh, finally, I just wanted to talk, you, you mentioned that uh, you had researched uh, tuberculosis uh, and its impact on popular culture, and I wonder if you might uh, say a few words about that as well. Not just in Albuquerque, but all over the world, because in the Romantic period, in the 1800s, it became really dramatic to be all pale because tuberculosis robbed you of all your color and so you were uh, and they thought and you were very pale and they thought that was glamorous and ladies would powder their faces white <laughs> in order to achieve that pale look and being really really skinny from tuberculosis was very popular so they would corset themselves in until their waist was that big also, it had, uh, in Albuquerque, it had an impact on domestic architecture because one of the things that became popular was sleeping in the open air. Mm -hmm. And so many houses added sleeping porches. Now, when you drive around Albuquerque, you still see houses with sleeping porches. It became a fad, okay? So that doesn't necessarily, one time somebody said to me, 
Mo Palmer said, if there's a house with a sleeping porch, that was where a tuberculosis patient lived, which was not what I said. I said the tuberculosis <laughs> epidemic and that fat added to the popularity of the porches. But So it had an impact on domestic architecture. It had a tremendous impact on the arts. If you think about it, all of those operas like La Boheme and La Traviata and the movie Camille, all these people were dying of tuberculosis, okay? So a great deal of romantic stuff. And also, the idea of the vampire sucking you dry and taking all your blood and turning you pale. There was a study done, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine. In any event, there was this epidemic of vampirism back east somewhere in one of the colonies. Now we're thinking maybe there was an epidemic of tuberculosis because what the vampire does to you, you know, resembled exactly the symptoms of tuberculosis. So an enormous impact on music from the operas and so forth, movies, popular culture. So could you say that like um, a stake through the heart is an ineffective public health treatment? <laughs> I wouldn't do it on anybody who had TB. <laughs> I might do it on a vampire. Okay. There is going to be an exhibit at the Albuquerque Museum on chasing the cure to Albuquerque. I believe it starts April 22nd. I just uh, edited their text this week. And I can't remember the exact date, but sometime from April and then six months following, that it will be up. And it, I looked at the artifacts she's having, and it's wonderful. Hmm. Just So it's going to be just a wonderful show. Uh, thank you so much, Mo Palmer. Oh, sure. And then one of the most recent diseases to, uh, to make an impact in New Mexico, to make us famous in a way, uh, was the subject of, of, uh, of Nora's research. So what did, you, uh, what did you look into? I looked into the hantavirus. The hantavirus. And we looked this up. We had a question about how to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Hanta um, or hanta. Yeah. Uh, according to um, the American Heritage Dictionary, it's pronounced hanta, so... So we're going to stick with that. Yeah, sounds yeah. good to me. And a lot of the information I found was from this terrifying and interesting book called Virus Tracking the New Killer Plagues. Okay, Virus Tracking the New... Sorry, Virus X. Virus X. Tracking the New Killer Plagues Out of the Present and Into the Future by Frank Ryan. Okay. Yeah. So... He's really into Hantavirus. And <laughs> He's into it. Yes. Like I'm into Star Wars. He's into Hantavirus. Yeah. They actually kind of happen around the same time period in May. Star Wars? <gasps> Wait. The first, guess when Hantavirus was discovered, when the, wo- the first known woman died, like which kicked off the Hantavirus. Was it uh, the year that Star Wars came out? <laughs> it was May 4th. Oh, my God. It was May the 4th. It was oh. May 4th. 1993. Yeah. The release of the special editions. I knew it. <laughs> There's a connection. <laughs> Nothing is not connected to Star Wars. Okay. Okay. So tell us about Hanta, Hanta virus. So, I want to say Hanta for some reason. So Hanta virus had been discovered earlier, um, not in humans. Okay. But And I'll get a little bit into the history because they discovered more history and made more connections mm-hmm. as the hantavirus was discovered from New Mexico, from the Four Corners area. So starting with May 4th in 1993, um, a young Navajo woman, healthy, fell ill and died on May 5th. 
Oh my gosh. So, quick so like a really quick there. turnaround, um, and sort of, a you know, what, what could have caused this? She was healthy. Mm-hmm. These symptoms don't, you know, add up too much, mm-hmm. but okay. You know, she passed very sad. She had a, a husband, um, who her husband, Michael, and then her father were driving to her funeral in Gallup. So okay. this is days later, May 14th. Okay. Um, and previous to May 14th, Michael, the woman's husband had been experiencing flu-like symptoms, but mm. he went to the doctor. The doctor was like, I think it's flu and grief. Um, flu and grief. You know, mm. and he said, you should stay and be observed. But he was like, my wife just died. And we, and they also had a new baby, sadly. And so he was like, mm. I can't, you know, like, I don't have time. I'm not going to stay in the hospital for observation. So he and his father-in-law were driving down to Gallup, and he's just he's just deteriorating pretty quickly. Um, he can't be comfortable. You know, he's, like, hot and trying to find this comfortable position. And then um, Dad ends up pulling over in Thoreau, New Mexico. Is that how you pronounce oh, it? Um, okay. Oh, here we go. Yeah, Thoreau is what they say. Thoreau. Oh, Thoreau. Okay. okay. Cool. Thank you. Sure. So that's where he an ambulance comes um, from Gallup, from... Um, a hospital there to take him to okay. Gallup. So he ends up dying there as Ooh. well pretty soon after yeah. that. So these two kinds of mysterious death, both young and healthy people, you know, they're married to each other. Yeah. Um, so people in Albuquerque start to get involved, medical professionals, mm-hmm. uh, diseased people, and right. people in Gallup too um, are like, what happened? And so they start, you know, thinking about what could be the possibility and they realize, okay, this could be a disease that we don't know about. So the doctor in Gallup is Dr. Bruce Tempest and he's Mm -hmm. actually given credit for kind of finding the disease. Okay. Um, So if you look on Wikipedia, you'll see his name. Okay. And so he looked at, he was sort of the first responder Mm -hmm. and he saw Michael, the young man's lungs and they were totally white. Oh. Which meant that they were filled with fluid. Okay. So he basically oh. drowned in his own secretions. Oh, man. And right yeah. back to the secretions. Secretions. We're going to see a theme here. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> he remembered a similar case from a month ago um, with a young woman okay. who had ended up dying. Not, not this man's n- wife. Not this man's wife, okay. a different woman. Mm-hmm. So she was almost patient A, you know, okay. the first case of it. And... The same thing, her lungs had filled with fluid. They weighed as twice as much as they had normally. Um, and so similarly, no explanation. And they are saying, okay, we have to stop the funeral and burial of this woman that's happening today. Wow. So to, so they can so they can autopsy look at the body. And yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So there's um, you know, they go to the family and Burial is very important in Navajo culture yeah, and different, right. you know, you know, aspects of death. Sure. And, and like, you know, I'd, I'd say it's it's important to like European cultures, right. but it's really important to like Navajo culture. Right. Like, there's a lot of uh, prohibitions against uh, certain ways to treat the body and, and certain things you're supposed to do and, and, and so like, forth. And, and a, a time limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had a student once who was an apprentice. In a, not a morgue, it was um, the medical. It was basically in places that did autopsies okay. 
for, you know, unexplained deaths. And that um, he was telling the class once how usually bodies that came from the Navajo reservation had different instructions or you had, Uh, you knew, you know, where each body was from and their cultural preferences for treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So the doctor went to the family in Gallup and said, this is why we want to do this. And Mm -hmm. they, they gave permission for her body to be sent for autopsy. Yeah. Yeah. So both, um, and her name is Rosina. Rosina. I'm saying that right. So, Rosina and Michael, this married couple, were went to Albuquerque. Um, and so both the doctor in Gallup and now in Albuquerque, they're looking at what could be the cause of this. And they're looking at these three known patients. Okay. And it's kind of in a wide distance for um, uh, respiratory infectious disease. Okay, so they're... So spread out a bit. Yeah, northeast of Gallup, south of Gallup, west of Gallup. So there's not a clear pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, So the two women performed autopsies in Albuquerque, and the internal organs revealed nothing. The bacterial and viral cultures grew nothing. So they're just like, what is this? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So they have this, and so they think, um, you know, they, they find internal bleeding of the stomach and the only thing that they can think of for that is could they have taken too much aspirin together or another pill in some sort of like suicide suicide pact okay um you know and then they rule that out but they're they're just racking their brains for some sort of they're just spitballing at this point right exactly they think because it's sort of in anthrax time period and so oh, like is this okay. anthrax you know did they yeah inhale so, some toxin okay hmm. um, so that that was a time when the, when people were worried about anthrax or that it was that it was at least known oh okay and used i see i don't think it was like as a huge scare yeah. as it was later right yeah so but this is from the week you know, that week they're working on a Sunday. It's basically serious enough yeah. that these people are like, so this is all happening in a week's time. Yeah. Frame. In a week's time frame. Wow. Um, where it's considered an emergency mm-hmm. in the sense that they need to figure out what's going on. Right. Yeah. Um, so at this point, the medical, the medical community in New Mexico is alerted. So Santa Fe mm-hmm. and then the CDC, is also alerted um, around May 26th. Mm-hmm. And so around that same time, his, not sorry, his, her brother, Frank, Rose, okay. Rosina's brother. Okay. And they grew up on the Navajo reservation, mm-hmm. but he had moved to Washington and came back with his pregnant wife, Dolores, mm-hmm. to go to her funeral. Ooh. So Frank, her brother, comes down with, these flu-like symptoms, but this time they're alerted to it. So they send him right away to the UNM hospital. Okay. Um, They're not messing around this time. They're not messing around. And so he is sick, but not as horribly. Mm -hmm. And so they think, okay, we got it. And Dolores, his pregnant wife is really worried. And they're like, you can stay in the room or have a bed. And she was just so worried. She just stayed on the floor with blankets was around Mm. his side the whole time. And as Frank is coming out of it, it's just horrible. Guess who becomes sick? Oh, no. Dolores. And she's like, oh, I'm getting achy because I've been sleeping on the floor. Like, because I haven't been sleeping in the bed. And they're like, we need to get you. Yeah, okay, Um, good. (laughs) And just spoiler alert, Dolores lives. Okay, good. So they do live. All right. 
because she actually plummeted really quickly. Uh And she was one of the first patients that they saw severely get ill, but also tried treatments on like giving them oxygen, Mm -hmm. um, took samples from, you know, so she w- she was really integral in figuring out what was going on and ended up. So are the living. symptoms like you kind of feel like maybe you have a cold or something and then you die? It sounds yeah, it sounds like you feel fluy, achy, okay. muscly. So nothing fever. that you you're not like well, if it was smallpox you'd be like I'm in I'm covered in pustules. Right. I need to see the doctor. With this it's like I feel like I have the flu. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to worry that much about it, and right. then you die. Right. Wow. Okay. That's right. that's the most terrifying kind. Right, which is terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so back at the CDC and in Albuquerque, they're eliminating all these possibilities. Uh-huh. So they try the plague. You know, different yeah. plagues. Sorry, say that with a little <laughs> yes, A. Plague. Plagues. Um, <laughs> a plague of diseases. We say plagues down here. Um. And so. <laughs> They're trying, yeah, so they're just like, okay, we need to figure out what this is. And meanwhile, more people are getting it, more cases are being connected to it because mm-hmm. they're, they're figuring out, oh, this other mysterious death could very well be oh. this thing. Okay, this other, yeah. you know, fast death could be this right. thing. So the news media is picking up on it. Mm-hmm. And this is when a racist angle comes in. Oh, good, okay. Yes, I know, because... <laughs> Hooray, a terrible disease that kills people... Like, From out of nowhere and racism. Right. All right. So the, and you know, to give Albuquerque some credit, the Albuquerque Tribune mm-hmm. um, and other New Mexico publications didn't use this term, which was used a lot or the series of terms. Uh-oh. So it became deemed as the Navajo illness, Navajo disease. Oh, okay. You know, like Navajo when, flu. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, if one Navajo person has it, then of right. course. Then it's the Navajo flu. Would it ever be the Anglo flu or the <laughs> white flu? You know? Yeah. It's like with AIDS when they called it the, the gay disease. Right. And stuff exactly. Like that. Yeah. So, and there's, um, you know, nationally, like the Baltimore Sun had an article in June when it was first getting rid of, written about, quote, rodent virus may cause Navajo illness, end quote. Oh, so yeah. just, you know, like... Right, really using, focusing yeah. on the ethnic aspect. And even though um, at that time there were Anglos, Hispanics, Hopi, and Navajos that had all died from it. Oh, really? And the Albuquerque Tribune did report that. They led yeah. with, like, who, you know, had mm-hmm. had it and died from it, but... Yeah. yeah. It, it had stuck in the minds of the, of the Eastern media yeah, that it was it, Navajo. Yeah. yeah right. And even after um, it had been, you know, proven that everyone could get it, right. some like Reuters, I think in USA Today, still used it, and we're keep we, oh, everyone's okay. like, stop using it, and they're like, okay, <laughs> you know, we, yeah, they eventually we, caught on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, as far as racism goes, it's not the worst, right? <laughs> yeah, but I should say that racist things were happening to Navajos in the area, so like. Like a like Navajo kids going to summer camp had to bring a medical chart. Oh, um, a bus of like a Navajo tourist group was turned at the away at the border of California. Right, restaurants were saying if you look Navajo or known to be Navajo, you couldn't uh, go there. So there were geez. these okay, you know, well, real implications. For bursting my bubble. Sorry, <laughs> it wasn't all. Yeah, just <laughs> the name. <laughs> um, and also people in the 
Navajo Nation and the reservation, now we're getting kind of hounded by the press. Yeah. And we're getting, you know, their their space was getting invaded. So sure. there's a lot of signs up at that point, which made it harder for the medical community mm-hmm. to go in and figure, like, and try to work with them to figure out the source of the hantavirus. Because they were inundated with outsiders. Yeah. You know, snooping around. Right. And, okay. and in, like, a scary sad time oh, where people yeah, were dying right. and they didn't, sure. they didn't know what was going on. And yeah, you know, just all this kind of imagine like living in a community, a small mm-hmm. community where some illness seems to be. Yeah. And it's like called the, uh, the Albuquerque disease and everybody from Albuquerque has to like sign right. waivers whenever they go anywhere. And right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And like I, yeah, you I might get that. it, but you don't know how you might get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad enough that you're, like having to deal with a mystery disease that's killing people, but also, you know, everybody's focusing on the, uh, you know, the aspect of where it's coming from and what's different about the way you live and yeah, all this. Yeah, exactly. See that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So that's happening. And then on the science sides side of things, okay. um, the CDC, through a lot of technical things that I can't totally parse, but you should right. read this book. And, <laughs> you know, look at it for yourself. And then science happens. Science happens <laughs> with, and my God, the level of protection. You yeah. know, this was a like level four virus, which is the highest. Oh, okay. So like only the top they're, people could. They're making sure that they have their protective equipment yeah. and their air vents closed, unlike the uh, laboratory doing the smallpox. Mm-hmm investigation. And I guess there had to be a wind, like air had to be traveling really fast. So it Mm -hmm. sounded like gale force wind. So a lot of workers who worked at the level of level four lost some hearing, even though they had protective hearing, but it was just so. Wow. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. Just to keep it from being able to settle. Yeah. I guess. I think so. Interesting. Yeah. And a lot of people had to rotate or move from it because it was such high pressure yeah. work that, you know, right. it's kind of hard to yeah, handle. Yeah, mystery disease. Yeah. So, okay. So they confirm that it's the hantavirus. Um, so was that something that they knew existed already at that point? Yes. So okay. the hantavirus was discovered in Korea. Okay. Um, and it, the you found, right, the Hanta River? Right, the Hanta River. Yeah. Uh, is what it's named for. Mm-hmm. Right. So it emerged in the Korean War among Americans, you know. So that's when Americans became aware of it. Uh, okay. Were they getting infected by it at that yeah. point? Yeah. Oh, okay. So Americans were getting infected by it yes. during the Korean War. Okay. Yes. But the real, the, when it really came into, and some died, and it was just kind of a mystery illness that wasn't uh-huh. paid that much attention to. Right. But when it really came into focus was... They were the Americans were doing training mm-hmm. um, in '89, and in Korea, in Korea, okay. near the border with North Korea, kind of undeveloped area, oh. and yeah. this mysterious illness emerged. Whoa, yeah, <laughs> and so that was sort of the modern focus on right Hanta virus, and, and it was it was this exists in in Korea. Mm-hmm. This is a thing we know about over there. Yeah, what's shocking is it suddenly springs up in the Navajo nation of all Mm -hmm. places, which is not it, you know, this is a very low population density, very Mm -hmm. kind of isolated from any like metropolitan area kind of place. Right. So were there any theories about what 
how it got there? There, I mean, the only thing that, and I haven't read the whole book. It goes into a lot of you uh-huh. know, Ebola, new kind of fun diseases like that. But that they think that there was a drought previous to '93 for seven years, and then okay. there was rain and snow and mild weather. So all a lot of pinon. You know, bushes, uh-huh. I don't know, plants flourished. Right. And a lot of grasshoppers lived, which mice eat. Oh, deer okay. mice. Because it comes from mice, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it comes from mice. Um, and deer mice specifically in the New Mexico okay. case. So then animal people. Sorry about my terminology. <laughs> animal people. Animal people. <laughs> people who study animals. Okay. <laughs> We're going to have to explain this one. All right. Um discovered that this this epidemic in humans was preceded by this huge spike in deer mice. Yeah. And so they're thinking deer mice and it, and that deer mice have antibodies. They don't they aren't affected by hanta. Oh, okay. So they might have lived for who knows how many years with they, hanta in their bodies. Right. But just that this huge proliferation of them this mm-hmm. one summer you know yeah. created more possibilities. And do deer mice are they typically in contact with people or are they more of like a field mouse kind of they they they'll get anywhere oh okay yeah okay so so i guess then i was thinking that maybe larger populations would mean they'd be more in contact with people but instead they're already in contact with people but now there's just more of them and in contact with people they found that summer that that may the deer mice population went from 20 per hectare. I don't know how big that is. Yeah, I don't know either. No. <laughs> let's, let's look this up because yeah. this is something we should know. Um, all I know is it's not hectare, which I've always tried to say. I know. It really looks like <laughs> it should be. Uh, it's 100 uh, errors. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, an acre is about, uh, it's about half a hectare. Um, one hectare contains about, 2.47 acres. Okay. One hectare, hectare contains about 2.47 acres. There. Thank you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's imagine 20, 20 deer mice per yeah. that space yeah. in May. And then in August of that year, it dropped down to four. Oh, okay. So four was more normal and 20 was kind of... So they're hopping around everywhere. Yeah. And they did... Breathing. Is it respiratory? No, it's it's um I don't know what it's called off the top of my head, but dropping saliva. Ah, okay. Grow up. Ew, gross. All right. Yeah. So that's why, and this is my takeaway: don't yeah. clean up desolate areas or areas where mice could nest without oh, some God. sort of face covering. Yeah, I know that there were significant concerns about um, hantavirus at places like the D.H. Lawrence Ranch. Right. If you remember, a lot of their facilities, uh, they used they had uh, cabins and so forth that were shut down because of concerns about um, hantavirus. And uh, for our listeners, uh, D.H. Lawrence uh, lived here in New Mexico, uh, north of Taos, and, and died uh, on a ranch that he owned. Um, and it's now owned by UNM uh, and in terrible, terrible shape. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that was part of the reason it's in terrible shape was uh, they you, you have to um, go in with uh, safety measures um, in some of the places uh, that need to be taken care of because yeah. of uh, hantavirus concerns. Uh, so how many people died of hantavirus uh, 
Do you think? Do you well, know? <laughs> I just, don't. Just make up a number. <laughs> it was, so. oh, here I go. Here, I knew I had it. So by July of 94, so the next summer, uh-huh. 20 out of the national total of 80 hantavirus victims had been treated in the intensive care unit at the UNM hospital. Okay. So Sorry. it was concentrated so here. Right. Yeah. And also, because you spoke of the um, mortality rate. Uh-huh. And the mortality rate was initially 70%. Okay. Um, but in New Mexico, local treatment reduced it to 35%. So oh, we okay. really did some good work in... What is, uh, what is the treatment for it? It's really the getting oxygen yeah. in. And some in some cases, it mostly affects the lungs, but in some right. cases, it affects the heart. Yeah. So seeing if there's an irregular heartbeat and then knowing okay. whether to focus on the heart versus the lungs or so both. It's kind of just like paying attention mm-hmm. and addressing the symptoms as they appear. Yeah. Uh, like aggressive treatment, I think. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you got to be in the ICU and yeah. they've got to make sure your heart doesn't stop or yeah. you don't stop breathing. And there's no cure, but they say the earlier treatment, the better chance you have. Okay. Um, are there... Uh, are there still, it says, okay, it says here, September 2012, eight new cases of hantavirus were confirmed. There's one in 2017, Two th- a death. Okay. Yeah. 2017, a death. Um, uh, it's been in Mexico. It's been Canada. Um, yeah, so it's kind of it's kind of everywhere, but it seems like, I mean, fortunately it didn't turn into some super plague or whatever. Right. Uh, it, it seems like once they knew what was going on, they were able to mm-hmm. kind of control for that. Yeah. And That's good. One interesting thing. And I think for disease people, it's interesting. You can really specifically locate whatever strain. Uh huh. So if you, you know, that you have it and they figure out your strain and they look at droppings from, you know, Phoenix versus Shiprock versus Snowflake, Arizona versus Utah. They can figure out where it is specifically. So they can they can really nail it down yeah. and, and take measures to suppress it in that area. Yeah. That's good. I found a dead mouse in my house about a week ago. How do you feel after this? Um, right now I'm like <laughs> kind of got like some congestion <laughs> going on. I kind of feel like my lungs are filling up with fluid. No. <laughs> Amazingly, I didn't get itchy or anything talking about smallpox, but right now, I honestly, I've got a little... No. Yeah. <coughs> it was... But, it, you know, it's funny because you had mentioned earlier that you were feeling that way, too. Yeah. But while you were talking about it, I was like, oh, I did find that mouse there the other day. And immediately I thought to myself, my lung feels a little funny. And then I immediately got that feeling of, oh, no, I have hantavirus. <laughs> Uh, that you get. <laughs> yeah. Right. As all the, um, yeah, it's, they should call it the web MD effect. Seriously. There's probably a it's name for real. it already. Uh, hypochondria. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Uh, but when you, when you start looking things up and all you can think of is, wow, you know, I, I do feel a little like I have brain cancer right now. Yeah. You know? I do have, you, you type in headache into web MD. Oh my God. You're like, could I've be a tumor. Yeah. Um, so you probably don't. Probably don't. Yeah. <laughs> but one last little thing is that it was going to get the name, which I have mixed feelings, but it was going to be the Four Corners virus, like this oh, okay. particular strain. Yeah. But the the area was like, I don't want to be named. You yeah. know, I don't want that. It was the same thing with the Navajo disease yeah. or yeah. whatever they were calling it. So it's called the Sin Nombre. 
virus. Oh, is that its official name? Yeah. Sin nombre. Yeah. Its official name is no name. Yeah. Wow. Um, but everybody just calls it hantavirus. Yeah. Because nobody even knows where the Hanta River is. It, exactly. In, well, I mean, most people in this country don't know where the Hanta River is. I assume people in Korea know where the Hanta River is and are mad about us calling it the Hanta virus. No. Yeah. Thank kind of like you. when you call Sorry. it the Chinese bird flu or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, kind of thing. They don't, nobody likes that. They, they just need to stop naming diseases after places and people and the type of people that they get right, it, you know, right. or got it first. Like it could be the deer mouse virus. Even yeah, Why don't we call it? Yeah, exactly. Why don't we call it the deer mouse virus? Yeah. And then we'll just hate deer mice, which is fine. You don't want yeah. deer mice in your house. Um, yeah, cute. it was a dead a dead mouse uh, under my bed. It was, huh. and for like a couple of days, Cordy had been like, "Do you do you smell a little something no. weird?" And I'm like, "I'm sorry, I'll take a bath." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then it it turned out it was a it was a mouse under the bed. So patient oh. patient zero of the new hantavirus outbreak get right cats. here. But I'm allergic to cats, so Me then too. I'll definitely have like congestion in my lungs and think I have hauntivirus. Would you rather all the, time. the <laughs> But yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Well, um, I think that brings us uh, to the end of our um, our second part of our disease cycle here. Did you have anything uh, you wanted to add at the end, or no? Just that I didn't know that it that New Mexico was such an origin spot for yeah. this new strain. Right, um, and I'm curious if it took if the f- whole state felt frenzied, you know, when it was desired, desired when it was coming out. Right, um, you know, I wasn't here then, but I know that like when I came back in 1995 or something, it was certainly something that a lot of people were uh, were talking about um, and concerned about, and there were there were problems with uh, Meckard me- Meckards. Medical records, which I call <laughs> meckards, uh, being inaccessible because of where they were stored and the potential of, of mouse mm. infiltration. God. Well, Maybe mice are the real enemy. Forget the Russians. You know what? Mice suck. Although uh, one of the theories was that Russians were flying UFOs and dropping this. I cannot tell if you're joking or not. No, right no. In, yeah. <laughs> that was one of the that theories. Was, and Russians specifically. Yeah. I guess... 93 but and UFOs, still? not just planes, but that they're Yeah, UFOs. the Russians. Well, let's just throw a few more conspiracies <laughs> in there. Um, Russian shape-shifting lizard people were uh, delivering pizza to pedophiles and also right. had put mice on it. To, well, now, now the Russians <laughs> are killing the pedophiles, and that's a good thing. Uh, oh, God. I can't keep it straight. <laughs> uh, I'm not for the summary execution of pedophiles. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> Um, okay. Uh, well, we should, uh, do you have anything else no, to kind of add on? All right. Something to sleep on. We should mention our new pat- patrons. Uh, we've had quite a few new patrons coming on board in the last, uh, last month or so. Okay. We already mentioned Joshua Hayland and Old Boar Gullet. We've got April, Rachel Langer, Julie Bannerman, Amy Nevitt, Jim Robillard, Noah Patterson, Jesse Crawford, uh, Ryan Schiff and Ben Tucker, Sierra Nets, Alexandra Samoyoa, Christopher Suski, Courtney Fitzgerald, Farrell M. Smith, Amy Gabe, Roland Pentilla, 
Isaac Clark, and Sandra Dodd. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. uh, Absolutely, sincerely. Uh, You're a huge help to what we do. Um, And, uh, well, we'll we'll podcast at you later. Bye. Shining